And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 2 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, just as your heavenly light, your star led these wise men to worship the boy Jesus, so lead us by your spirit into truth today. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, keep us, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, and guide us into truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, I find continual amazement in the thought that centuries ago, men climbed aboard wooden ships with canvas sails, without any electronics, without, without any guidance systems, and they left Europe, headed west across the Atlantic Ocean, having only the most remote idea of what was out there and how long they might have to travel before they found whatever was out there. What kind of courage does that require? What kind of, what kind of risk-taking spirit must you have to climb aboard a wooden ship and just sail west? Could you do that? Could you take that risk? I don't even go to the grocery store without Google Maps. I don't, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how they did it. Well, they didn't have maps. They didn't have charts, the first explorers. They had theories about how big the world was. And if you sailed west far enough, you're bound to run into something. You're bound to find something. And with that idea, they went. Now, to be fair, they weren't without any navigational capabilities. In fact, they could very reliably plot a course by the stars. They had a tool called a sextant. It, it measures the angular distance between two objects. If you've ever watched any old nautical movies or old pirate movies, you see uh, the navigator using a sextant. And, and by, by measuring the heavenly bodies and by observing the position of the North Star and the position of the moon, they could quite accurately calculate what latitude they were on. Other stars and other constellations were very useful to help keep them on course. They were so skilled in astronomy that they had a great deal of confidence in the fact that they could keep the ship pointed in the direction that they wanted it to go. And not only that, but they could find their way back home. And that just boggles my mind. I don't, I don't understand that. But they did it, and it's incredible. Sailors are not the only men who understood all this, the heavens above were kind of a roadmap by which ancient travelers found their way throughout the world. And God designed the skies to be used this way. God intended for them to be used this way. At creation, uh, God made the heavenly bodies for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And so not only do they provide a calendar, but the heavens reveal things. And you can find out where you are on earth by looking up at the sky, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we haven't even begun to fathom one thousandth of one percent of the mysteries and the glories that God has hidden in the heavens, in the scope of the cosmos. And though we have telescopes and we have satellites and we have sent out probes, we don't have anywhere near the same connection to the heavenly bodies that ancient man had. 
He saw pictures, ancient man saw pictures in the night sky. He had names for all of them and he lived with the presupposition if something remarkable was happening in the heavens that it must have some relevance to what was happening on earth. Ancient man looked at the skies and expected to see signs there. Well, all of this is in the background for these strange men from a far eastern country who show up in Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus. They would have had a considerable familiarity with the night sky, and so the appearance of something new in the sky would have been of great significance to them, of such extreme importance that not only are they able to put together the meaning of this thing, that a king had been born, but have it with such confidence that they go on a journey. They say, well, we should take him gifts, traveling all the way from their country to actually find the boy. They find his town, in, uh, if they find the boy Jesus in Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. So, so how did they put all this together? What were they thinking? Why did they make this journey? And why does Matthew make a point of telling us about all of this? Well, we're in a study of Matthew's gospel. And as we continue our study today, let's work, work through the story of these wise men. Chapter two, verse one says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Matthew loads his introduction to this narrative with several important pieces of data. First of all, he tells us once again that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is, everyone knows, the city of David. In the opening of Matthew's gospel, he expends a lot of ink and a lot of effort to show how Jesus is the heir of David. Jesus is the successor to David's throne. Not only that, Jesus is the heir of all the promises and the covenant that God made with David, which points to Jesus as the rightful king, which points to him as the king who will sit on the throne of that kingdom that lasts forever. And so he reminds us, just as we start, Jesus was born in the city of David. But there's a tension. Here's another king reigning over Judea presently. Uh, Matthew says this was in the days of Herod the king. This is Herod, Herod the Great, who is not a son of David. He is an Edomite. He is a descendant of Esau. And he's a figurehead client king who's been placed over Judea by Augustus Caesar. And his job is to, as best he can, Romanize the Judean province. That's his job. So we have this true king, Jesus, but presently on the throne is a false king, a usurper. Though everyone who looks at this situation will say that if Jesus claims to be king, he's the usurper and Herod is the true king. But there's this tension between the true king, who is the son of David, and this usurper, who's the son of Esau. Then, into the middle of this situation, Matthew introduces wise men from the east. They appear. The Greek word for wise men is magos. That's where we get the word mage or the word magician. We commonly call them magi, which is plural for mage. Who are they? These types of men show up throughout the scriptures. Ancient kings, it seems, and every ancient king we meet in the Bible seems to have this court of counselors, these magicians, these sorcerers, these soothsayers, you know, this big collection of, of weird beards, of strange guys. Pharaoh had his court magicians. So did Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter two, 
Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he can't interpret. So who does he call on? He calls on his court magicians, his astrologers, his sorcerers to come counsel him, tell him what his dream is and what it means. And of course, the only man who can help him is a young Jewish man named Daniel, who, after he interprets the dream, is promoted to the chief of the Magi. And Daniel remains in that position through the end of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the, the Persian Empire. So every king has his eccentric wizard guys, his astrologers, his magicians, who he relies on to help him interpret the world around him and help answer his questions. You know, King Arthur has Merlin and Aragorn has Gandalf. Uh, every king has his uh, weird guy who can read the stars and, and, and tell him the signs. Well, these magi are scattered throughout the world of the Bible. And in, and in Acts, we run into a couple of corrupt magi, right? There is um, the, 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 these guys who hold people hostage with their superstitions, like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 and Elymas in Acts chapter 13. These magi were feared. They were intimidating. They are strange and mysterious. And these cabinets of magi, these committees of magi, were viewed by many as king makers and king breakers. They held real power in ancient eastern kingdoms. So then, imagine Herod's surprise when these foreign king makers just appear unannounced one day and ask, where is he who has born, been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. These men have made this trip because they have seen a star, and they've drawn a remarkable conclusion from this sight that an extraordinary king has been born to the Jews. How did they make that connection? Well, several historians have pointed out that there seems to have been in the ancient world at this time, a general feeling of expectation regarding the coming of a king, a king of great power, and a king or a people from Judea. There is coming an eternal kingdom and an emperor from Judea. Several historians comment on this. In fact, contemporary historians comment on this. Men who lived during that time period, the Roman historian Suetonius, who lived in the first century, he was the one who wrote the biographies of the first 12 Caesars. And he commented, hear, hear what he wrote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, who you've probably run across his name, you've probably come across it somewhere in your studies, Tacitus writes that there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. Josephus was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. He was a Jew and he was a Jewish historian. And Josephus records that the Jews had the belief that, and here's what Josephus writes, about that time, one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. So in the world at this time, there seems to have been this palpable expectation 
throughout the world this real sense that something incredibly historically momentous was about to take place. And Paul even refers to this in, in Galatians. He wrote that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born un, under the law. Uh, Paul comments on this, this expectation, this fullness of time, how history was pregnant with expectation that something incredible was about to happen. But what could have initiated that? Why was everybody thinking this way? And so specifically, why were they thinking about Judea? Why, why, what led them to that conclusion? Well, there's very good evidence that the Hebrew scriptures had been copied and studied throughout the ancient world, and even the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, had access to the Hebrew Bible. You know, we go to Barnes and Noble and you walk around and you see all the books that are available and you think, is, is every third person in this country an author? Has, it, has everybody published? It feels like everybody's written a book by now. And books are so widely available and, and uh, our, our lives are populated with books. But you see in the ancient world, if there was a book and a book that was in use and a book that was special to a people, you wanted to get hold of that. There's not a lot, there's not a lot written down and there's not a lot of books. So the Hebrew scriptures were very valuable and very precious, and to uh, have access to that was very important for philosophers and thinkers and, and readers and kings and magi in the ancient world. So they all had access to the Hebrew Bible, and certainly if these magi had come from the east, if they came from Persia, they would have known about the greatest magi of them all, who was Daniel. They would have had his book, and of course you've studied Daniel's book, Daniel gives a historical roadmap to the empires to follow Babylon. And even if you look at the numbers in Daniel, you see kind of a calculation there that leads up to this time in history. If you do the math, you get to this, this time period where uh, this king is going to come, this Messiah is going to arrive. So anybody who had read the Hebrew scriptures, especially who had read Daniel, could have taken all of this and put it together and expect there is something to this. They also had access to um, the law of Moses. And in uh, Numbers, there's another oracle, there's another, um, another magi named Balaam. Remember, Balaam was supposed to uh, curse Israel. He was paid to curse Israel. Instead, the Spirit of God fills Balaam and he blesses Israel. Listen to what Balaam said. They would listen to the words of another magi and, and listen to the specificity which, with which Balaam speaks of these things. Listen closely. This is Balaam from Numbers chapter 24. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and who has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, I see him, but not now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemy, shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So a star, a scepter comes out of Judea. It comes out of Judah. And anybody who reads this would have started to start to put this together. The wise men might have seen themselves in Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 4. Here again, 
Here's what Isaiah says. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall proclaim the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their roots? Who's, who are these who are coming to, to Jerusalem to bring the riches in? Surely the coastland shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them to the name of Yahweh your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. So these wise men could have not only put it together that there is a great king coming out of Judah, his sign is a star, and when we see him, we need to bring gifts because of what Isaiah said. We need to bring gold and we need to bring incense, and that's what they do. So when these magi in Matthew chapter 2 see an astronomical phenomenon, it's likely that it provoked their study in these ancient texts, and that might even taken them a couple of years to put it all together, to debate through it, to figure this out. Jesus is probably a small boy by the time they make it to Judea. The wise men don't come to the stable. Joseph and Mary are living in a house. And, and even Herod is going to have to put together a timeline. How, when did you see the star? How long has it been? So some time has passed, but they eventually, the Magi, piece it all together and rightly conclude that we should take a trip to Jerusalem to meet this king and we should bring gifts. But what was the star that they followed? Several attempts have been made to figure out the timing of Halley's Comet or the alignment of the planets that, that may have merged to create a greater light. I'm not sure about all of that because comets don't stand over houses and stars don't stand over cities. And if years have passed, the heavens move, things uh, fall in different positions, but this star uh, comes and stands over the house. So it seems like, the, the, it, it sounds kind of funny to say this, the simplest explanation is that uh, this, this might have been the glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness by day and by night, that glory cloud that we've looked at and when we studied Ezekiel, uh, the glory cloud that consumes Elijah that we looked at a few weeks ago. Um, why couldn't it have been uh, an angelic uh, light that had the, the same one that has led people in the past in the scriptures lead these wise men to the place to find and worship uh, the young boy, boy Jesus? So they would have looked up to the sky for signs and they would have seen this extraordinary star that beha behaved like no other. And, and being accustomed to navigating by the stars, they would have followed this light all the way to Jerusalem as it actually led them to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, to the house where Jesus was. So they travel from far in the east to come worship this king whom the world is expecting, whom the Hebrews own scriptures have foretold, but, but their arrival in Jerusalem, the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem lands, it lands with a thud. 
They come to Herod expecting him to joyfully point them to the new king, but Herod doesn't know what they're talking about. They might have expected a line of people stretching out of the city, lining up to meet him and to bring him their gifts. I mean, Isaiah talked about hordes and swarms of camels coming from everywhere to bring gifts from afar. Well, Isaiah's prophecy is still being fulfilled as all the riches of the Gentiles are still flooding into the heavenly Jerusalem. But maybe they expected that to happen literally and to arrive and see this carnival-like atmosphere, music and banners and all of this fun rejoicing going on. But the Magi get to Jerusalem and everything's kind of carrying on like normal. They get to Jerusalem and say, hey guys, we're here. Where is he? Where, where's who? Who are you talking about? Well, the, the king of the Jews. We saw his star. We read the prophets. I know we're a little late, but we brought gifts. And the response they get is really embarrassing. The people who should have known and who should have seen the signs and the people who should have been the most excited, they don't even know what's going on. It was so obvious that people in Persia figured it out. But here in Jerusalem, Messiah was right under their nose and they're just muddling along as if nothing happened. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod's response to this is fear. And soon all the people are afraid too. They're not happy. They're not comforted. They're afraid. Herod governs by fear. Herod leads his people in fear. When Herod's afraid, he stirs all the people under him up in fear. He stirs them up in fear because he's governed by fear himself. Fear is Herod's king, and the last thing in the world that fearful tyrants want is to be surprised by something that they can't control. They know uh, that, that there's this new king, and the fact that there's this new king that Herod doesn't know about, a king that these foreign dignitaries do know about, that's not good news to Herod. Moreover, they came to worship. These magi came to worship this king that Herod doesn't know about. That's unacceptable. How did this happen, Herod thinks. So Herod gathers his magi, his court counselors, who are the chief priests and scribes. They're in his pocket. There's this weird parallel here that we see, oh, who's taken up in Herod's, in his hubris and in his pride? It's the scribes and the, the priests. They're, they're next to him. Verse four, when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the scribes quote Micah, the prophet Micah from the Old Testament, and Micah pinpoints Bethlehem as the birthplace of the king the Magi are looking for. And if Herod or any of the priests or any of the scribes were paying attention, they would have found themselves mentioned on the pages of Micah's prophecy. In Micah chapter three, the prophet condemns the false shepherds of Judah who, Micah writes, who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. That's how Micah describes the shepherds that rule over the land when the true shepherd comes. So uh, that's an accurate description of the leaders of, the, of Judah at this time, Herod, priests, scribes. 
even Pharisees. And before the chapter is even finished, Herod is going to prove that that's exactly what he's all about. He is the false shepherd. He is the cannibal king. So not only is Judea not a welcoming place, nor is it a hospitable place. They haven't rolled out the red carpet for Messiah. But it's a downright hostile place. It is a toxic place. It's not just indifferent. It's dangerous. And the prophet Micah foretells this. The the part that they quote from Micah's prophecy of the true shepherd who comes from Bethlehem, who comes from the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, he will deliver the people from the devouring cannibal shepherds. The paranoia and the anxiety of Herod the Great is well documented in history. Herod the Great is known for his suspicion. If he suspected that anyone was a rival to his power, he had that person immediately eliminated. Herod the Great uh, had his own wife put to death. He had her mother put to death. He assassinated his eldest son, Antipater, and also assassinated two of his other sons. Caesar Augustus, who was no Boy Scout, by the way, Caesar Augustus commented that it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And you can see this bitter, warped mind at work in what happens next. Verse 7, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. See, he knows how old of a child he's looking for by what time the appearance of the star was and how long it took the wise men to get to Jerusalem. Verse eight, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Herod has no plans to worship the child. Herod has plans to kill the child. But what do you expect? Herod is a pagan tyrant. Of course he's gonna act this way. But here's what's disappointing. The Jewish leaders, the priests and the scribes, even though they know the scriptures and they can point the Magi to the place where the king is born because of their understanding of the scriptures, they don't follow the wise men to worship Jesus. At their first opportunity to receive and worship their king, the religious establishment of Jerusalem rejects their king. This is the first of many, 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 many rejections that Jesus is going to receive from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. But it is so chilling that right out of the gate, they refuse to worship and rejoice at his coming, even while Gentiles have made great efforts to come find him. It's striking how much the scribes knew and how little they obeyed. They could take you to chapter and verse of where it says the Messiah is going to be born. And yet, that didn't spark gratitude. It didn't spark praise. It didn't spark worship. It did not direct their hearts to honor him. Let me step aside from the story real quick and say this. God forbid that we ever become like them. That we have all the answers and all the correct vocabulary and all the systematic definitions and not an ounce of worship or gratitude or obedience to the triune God of creation. There's no blessing, there's no life, there's no benefit to a superficial, merely intellectual religion. Do not hear me say that knowledge doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. 
How will you know what to obey? How will you know whom to obey or how to obey if you do not know what the Bible says? Yes, study the scriptures and obey them. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to hear and obey. Jesus says the one who hears and obeys is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. The one who hears and doesn't obey is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The wise men in the story heard, they saw the sign, and obeyed. If there's a sign, then we must bring him gifts. We must worship him. They heard and obeyed. They put it together. They followed the signs to obey. The foolish men in the story, they hear, they know chapter and verse. They can take you, they can tell you, but they don't obey. And their house is built on the sand, and indeed it's gonna fall before the end of the century. We must both hear and obey. Verse nine, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Like the uh, spirit hovering over the waters of creation, the voice of God at creation speaking light into the darkness. So now we have this new light shining into the darkness. God's glory hovering, God's glory shining over a new creation. And that's what is taking place here. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If the boy in that house is not the Messiah, if the boy in that house is not the king of kings, if he's not the son of God, if the boy in this house is not the second person of the Trinity, what the wise men are up to here is called idolatry. Uh, fall down and worship a child and bring him gifts. They bring him gifts. They bow down and worship him. But good news, it's not idolatry because he is the word made flesh. He is the son of God. He is the king and Messiah. And what they do is good and right and holy. They have been drawn to this place by God's Holy Spirit. And in their worship, they represent the first fruits of all the Gentile nations. This worship that they bring Jesus is just the first taste of the worship of all the nations that eventually flows to Jesus. Solomon sings about this in Psalm 72. Listen to Psalm 72. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Well, the wise men have read that, I assume, and they get on board early with Psalm 72. One day all kings will do this, but on this day, these men get us started. I've often mentioned how the call to worship goes out to the whole world every week. Everyone all across the world, all across creation is summoned to come into God's presence, to be cleansed, to hear his word, to bring gifts, to eat at his table. Now the call goes out to the whole world, but not everybody comes. Most people are as cold and as indifferent as the priests and the scribes. Some people hate Jesus and they're threatened by him like Herod was. But you come 
when the call goes out on the Lord's day to come and worship. You listen to the call and you come and you bring him your gifts and you bow down and you worship him. And what we do here in worship is just a glimpse. It's just a foretaste of what the whole world will do. All nations, the Psalm says, all nations shall serve him. You're just getting started early. You're getting in on the front end. We join these men in their first fruits worship. Do you wish you bought Apple stock in like 1980? Do you wish you got in early on that? I, I don't know how much that'd be worth today, but it sounds like that would be something that would have been smart to do in 1980s to buy Apple stock. Well, this is better than that. This is better than that getting in early on the worship of the nations. You come and these men came. A lot of jokes are made about the uh, gifts that they bring. What are young parents supposed to do with uh, myrrh? You know, you know, you can imagine maybe Mary saying, maybe a nice high chair, maybe a stroller, you know, but you bring me frankincense? What do I do with frankincense? What do I do with this? Also, it's traditionally assumed because uh, there are three gifts, there must be three wise men. I know a lot of the Christmas and Epiphany hymns mention three wise men. Well, there were probably at least three, so I guess it's, it's okay because it usually fits with the meter and it rhymes. We couldn't put in, uh, we, uh, between five and 12 kings of Orient are. That would be a, that'd be a funny song to sing. We don't know how many there are and we don't get their names. Some traditions say they know their names, but we don't, we don't know their names. Anything we say about that is just speculation. But we do get information on their gifts and that's what's important to Matthew and that's what he tells. He doesn't tell us their names, but he does tell us their gifts and what they bring is highly significant. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Obviously, these are not baby gifts. You don't bring these to a baby shower, but these are gifts for a king. Gold is kingly. A king wears a crown of gold in Psalm 21. The gold of Sheba is brought to honor Solomon. In these prophecies I've just read, you see gold coming to honor the king. Also in the Song of Solomon, the king is perfumed with myrrh. Myrrh is a costly oil made from a special tree resin. It's very precious. It's very, very expensive. And the king in Song of Solomon also smells like frankincense, which was a rich, costly incense. So myrrh is an oil. Frankincense is, a, is an incense. These are all kingly presents. They're, always, they're associated with the king throughout the scriptures. And these wise men's gifts recall the visit of the queen of Sheba as she comes to Solomon bearing gifts, coming from afar, bringing the wealth of the nations into the court of King Solomon, into the court of the king. So these are kingly gifts, but these are also priestly gifts. They all have connections to worship and to the tabernacle, which is fitting because the tabernacle is the house of the king. Uh, it's the house of Yahweh, who is king. And they, uh, they, so they also have a connection to the tabernacle and to the priesthood. In the Old Testament and in the tabernacle, gold, frankincense, and myrrh are all found in the same place when the priest offers incense on the altar of incense in the holy place. The altar was gold, frankincense was burned on the altar, the altar of incense, and myrrh was used in the anointing of the priest. That oil, uh, that myrrh oil was used in the anointing oil that was poured on the priest and on the tabernacle and on, on the furniture. It was, it was all anointed with myrrh, burning incense on an altar of gold. So the, so the gifts are not only kingly, the gifts are priestly. It's like the wise men are bringing the necessary materials for a new priesthood, a new tabernacle. If we're starting over here, we need the raw materials. We need, we need the precious items to start this new priesthood, this new tabernacle. 
And it's typical throughout redemptive history that whenever God establishes a new covenant with his people, he will send a Gentile from the outside to bring gifts, to bring wisdom, to bless the people of God. Someone comes from the outside to remind us that God's promise to Abraham was that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed, so all the nations are brought in whenever we have a new covenant. God sent Melchizedek bringing wine and bread to Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Uh, so Abraham could then, he communes there with God before Melchizedek. Jethro blesses Moses. He gives Moses wisdom and he blesses the people of Israel and he helps them structure their, their society. Hiram, king of Tyre, befriends Solomon and he gives materials for the building of the temple. Cyrus, king of Persia, sponsors the rebuilding of the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, there's always a Gentile coming from the outside. Whenever we're launching something new, here comes a Gentile with resources, with wisdom, with help and support and encouragement to help us do this thing that God has called us to do. So in keeping with this, the appearance of these wise men are, are standing in this long line of Gentile patrons who show up at new covenants, bringing blessings and gifts and materials. And one more thing, also on a very practical note, Joseph is about to have to take his family on a trip and they're gonna have to flee to Egypt. And these resources are gonna help them buy food and shelter and help sustain them through this journey to Egypt and back. Well, Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem and he expects them to report back once they found the child, but they don't. Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. They don't owe Herod anything. They're not ruled by him. In no sense does Herod have any authority over them. So they submit to the divine revelation that they receive and they righteously skip town without telling Herod where the house and the family of the king is, the king who's going to take Herod's place. It's also notable that they don't stick around Judea. They just leave. They've done their joyful duty. They've met the boy Jesus. They've worshiped him. And now they go back home to testify about the things that they've seen. Their work is finished and they go back home. We're gonna stop there. We're gonna pick this up next week. I'd like to close with just one thought about the fact that Herod, despite all of his suspicion and despite all of his intrigue, Herod gets something right. Jesus was in fact a very real threat to Herod's throne and to Herod's world. The kingdom that Jesus brings does not enter the world to prop up the kings and kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of heaven does not come so that the kings of the world can treat the kingdom of heaven as this great philosophical buffet, you know, just take a few ideas from here and there, whatever makes me feel good, whatever supports my agenda, whatever I can use to manipulate people. That's not why the kingdom of heaven comes. The kingdom of heaven does not come to support the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdom of heaven comes to supplant the kingdoms of the earth, to replace them, and to replace them in such a way that everyone everywhere, including all kings, will come to bow before the king of kings, bearing their gifts, building up his temple, bringing their glory into his realm. Herod was right the birth of Jesus brought a clear and present danger to the thrones and the authorities of this world. This concept is 
difficult for us to fully grasp sometimes because we tend to think of spiritual life, religious life, as somehow being separate or divorced from political realities and economic realities. We want to keep politics and religion separate. And of course, you never bring up either at a dinner party. And so what kind of maniac would put religion and politics together? Who would do that? And yet, that's exactly what the coming of Jesus does. But we think we're, we're allowed to think our Christian thoughts and have our Christian beliefs. But those beliefs and thoughts are somehow quarantined from real life the way the world works, you know, you gotta be practical. You can't, you can't always think in terms of the, the, the kingdom of heaven. You gotta, you gotta get real, you gotta get practical and keep, keep your Christian thoughts and your theology somewhat quarantined from the rest of life. We think that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual in the sense that it really only exists in our heads. It's just a thought, it's just a theory. After all, didn't Jesus say my kingdom is not of this world? Didn't he say that? Well, yes, he certainly did say that. What did he mean by that? What did he mean when he said, my kingdom is not of this world? He meant by this that his kingdom does not draw its power, it does not draw its authority, it does not draw its patterns or values from the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom does not belong to Herod, it doesn't belong to Pilate, it doesn't belong to Caesar. But it is a real kingdom, and it has a real king. His kingdom is not from this world system, but it is in every way for this creation and for these people. And when the royalty of Jesus was confirmed by these Gentiles from a foreign land coming to worship him, that is a real world political claim when they say he is king. Herod is right to see it as a political threat. Would that we had as much of an appreciation for the significance of this as Herod did. And by we, I'm talking about Bible-believing evangelical Christians. The coming of Jesus into the world is the announcement of a rival kingdom that stands in opposition to every institution that does not bow the knee to King Jesus. This new kingdom, which, which he brings in, it, it doesn't exist as simply another nation state along the other kingdoms of the world, but it's a kingdom in, in every way. This is a new creation, an alternative world with an alternative people and an alternative perspective on everything because everything runs through the foundational trust that Jesus is king and he deserves our loyalty and our obedience and it is Jesus who defines reality. And if you just think about the repercussions of this, that the Christian faith does not then simply offer the world a solid set of morals you know, just to help you do what you're already doing a little bit better. We're not aiming for the same things as the rest of the world. You know, every religion, you think, oh, all the world religions are basically the same. They all talk about honor and integrity and love, however you want to define those in a vacuum. No, the, the, the Christian faith in the kingdom of heaven does not operate on the same plane as the other religions of the world. Christ has come to cut the legs out from under every worldly empire, belief, philosophy, affection, and to establish his rule throughout the earth over all things. And to live in this reality as the subjects of this King Jesus means that we orient ourselves toward the pursuit of not only figuring out the right thoughts, yes, but to obey what he says by continually working out this kingdom agenda, continuing this kingdom work of building families, churches, institutions, which don't simply exist. We have plenty of things that just exist. Oh, institutions which rival, which even threaten the kingdoms of this world. 
We manifest our loyalty to this king every time we do what the wise men did to Herod, which was just ignore him and go out another way. The, the wise men were so wise in this that when a wicked, inept person really, really wants you to do something, that's the thing you know you're not gonna do. When they really, really, really want you to accept a thing or believe a thing, and they really want you to do it really, 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 really badly, that's the thing you don't do. We don't obey wicked and inept people in their wicked and inept plans. And so they go out another way. They say, no, thank you. We are not going to do that. And so we do that. We manifest our loyalty to this king every time we do that. We say, no, thank you. We're not going to indoctrinate our children with your perversions and with your filth. We're gonna go out another way, just like the wise men did. No, we aren't gonna let you define marriage for us. No, we're not gonna let you define what is a man and what is a woman. We're gonna go out another way. No, you don't get to call evil good and good evil. You don't get to accuse the righteous and appease the wicked. You don't think we're gonna follow you. You don't get to lie to our face and think you can get away with rewriting history right in front of us. We heard what you said the first time. We've got the YouTube video. We saw it. <laughs> we're gonna go out another way. We aren't here, kingdoms of this world. We aren't here just to go along with you. We're not here just to make nice with you. We're building something bigger and different, and eternal. We're gonna go out another way. Because if Jesus is king of kings, that means Herod isn't. That makes Herod mad, but that's just the facts. If Jesus is king of kings, then Herod isn't. If Jesus defines reality, that means Herod doesn't. And that goes for all Herods. That goes for all the false shepherds who have succeeded him throughout history. The wise men left Herod hanging because they know that's the old world. That's the old way. There's no future or life or blessing in following a wicked and inept man. Why do we care if we please him? Why do we care if we make him happy? Why do we care what he thinks of us? We don't. This new king is a king like the world has never seen before. And he is the king we are going to follow. He is the king I want to please. He is the one I'm going to worship with my gifts, with all my being. And we'll get to see this king grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. He'll grow in glory. He'll grow in the manifestation of his role as savior of the nations as we continue studying Matthew's gospel. But for now, let's pray. Oh God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us now, we who know you by faith, lead us to your presence where we may behold your glory where we may obey you in word and in deed and follow all that you have said, that we may seek to please you in all things through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.